Hello everyone, I am Rosido and this is the Marcido Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Morris Devil Podcast, a podcast about culture and cultural nomads designed for blacks and Asians and those who love them. I'm your host, Morris Devil, Nigerian-born, U.S. educated, Korean-speaking, struggling intellectual. I have with me a very spectacular, I think is the word for it. So, <laughs> she grew up in Sydney and Canberra, Australia, the first Aussie on the show, by the way, and she lived in Connecticut, USA for about two years of high school. She then moved to China independently at the age of 21, where a study abroad year turned into 11 years abroad, and she did a six-month thing in Cambodia. After three years back in Australia, she recently made her sixth international move back to Beijing. While she was in China, she began mentoring third culture kids. That means young people who were not Chinese citizens were growing up there due to their parents' choices of work or study. After 10 years supporting TCKs, that's another name for third culture kids, she wrote a book about it to explain their experiences and perspective to others. Her book is titled Misunderstood and was released in 2016. So everyone, join me welcoming Miss Tanya Crossman to the podcast. Hello, Tanya. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Quick one, what's your Chinese name? My Chinese name is Gao Tai. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean? Um, girl, it's a surname and it means tall, and I took it because it helps people remember who I am. Um, <laughs> Taya is the name that was, I was given by my lecturer my first year at university here, which is sounds similar to my English name, but also it just sounds good in Chinese. So Tai is like the shoots, the new shoots when something grows. So yeah, I think that yeah. was a good name for starting out here, like my new shoots in my new life. So yeah, I like it. So Pretty everything nice. about you is tall and shooting and just growing <laughs> and none of that. I like the whole package. Very okay. good. So I met Tanya actually on, I think it was Twitter. Um, yeah. She followed me on Twitter and I saw her name. I was like, okay. And then she followed me on Instagram. And when those two things connected, I'm like, okay, I want to know this person. So I clicked on her link. I followed back. And I was like, oh, she's a third culture person. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> and, you know, we started chatting on Instagram. I was like, hey, do you want to come on the show sometime? She's like, yeah, sure. I was like, but you have to listen to a few episodes and let me know if you want to come after we listen. And then we did. We set that up and she's here today. So I'm really, really glad to have you on the show and just to draw from your rich wealth of experience. So you grew up in Australia. Let's start with that yes. first. What was life like in Australia for you? Um, well, I mean, I think like any kid, all you know is normal, right? So it felt normal mm-hmm. to me. Um, I lived in Sydney in a small suburb of Youngleys when I was young until I was about eight or nine. I had a pretty ordinary hang out with everyone kind of life. Um, but when I look back, I realized that I actually was exposed to a lot of multicultural influences that because as a kid, I thought that was normal. Um, and it wasn't really until my 20s, looking back, I realized that not even all Australian kids had that experience. So, I mean, my first time living overseas, I was 13. So, yeah, it was normal to me to have had those kind of connections, I think, quite young. So, so you moved to China when you were 21. Why China? Well, I have fairly adventurous parents, independent people themselves. And so going halfway across the world, I guess, didn't seem as big a deal to them as it might to someone else. Um, but yeah. why China for me was because I had studied Chinese for a long time. When I was 11. By yourself? Well, when I was 11, I started grade 7. I had to pick a language at school. And at my school, the oh. options were German, Japanese, or Chinese. My mum had studied German. My sisters were doing Japanese. So I picked the language that no one at home could correct me in. <laughs> Uh, and that one act of stubbornness <laughs> turned into, um, there are a bunch of different coincidences, but, it all, but, but the end of the story was that I, I kept studying it until I actually was interested in it, which took about five or six years. Uh, but I got to the point where I was like, I'm really interested in this. I ended up taking an Asian studies degree, so I majored in Chinese at university in Australia, and my university had a program where you would go and study overseas 
um, yeah. your main language um, for a year. And it's covered, uh, like, I mean, it was part of my degree in Australia. I'm, I'm kind of curious, though, because I'm currently learning Korean. I've been learning Korean for about a year now, and I'm very enamored with the culture. It's it's a deeper connection for me. Mm. I kind of imagine that if I, I don't know if I'm ever going to move to Korea. I'm going to visit, though. I haven't visited yet. But um, I'm in that honeymoon phase where everything about Korea is just exciting for me. I do see mm-hmm. some some sides of, a, of Korea that I don't necessarily like, which is kind of normal for any country, even my country. There's something about my country I don't like. But I'd like to ask you, when you were learning Chinese, and when you eventually had to go to China, did the reality there and your expectation, was there a match or was there a mismatch? Why or why not? Um, well, before I forget, I actually did some Korean too at uni. I, I've done like, I don't know, I lose track. I've done about 12 languages, I think, at this point. But Chinese is the only one I'm Can you in. speak Korean? No, I, speak I speak Korean? a few words. I've forgotten. I only did one year at university. I've forgotten most of it. I can read like, Hangul. Like, like, say like, Annyeong and Gapamida yeah. and things like that. That's about it. So, um, That's useful to know. <laughs> you can say hi and thank you. Okay, I just love, thank you. I love languages. I find language fascinating because it's how you learn to understand other people and another way of thinking. And so it's just something I've always yeah. been interested in. But, um... My first before you answer that, do you notice that the more the more sorry before you answer that, the more non-romantic languages you learn, the more you realize how English really sucks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, English is a terrible. It's a horrible language. language. Well, okay. It's a horrible, it's, horrible it's language. I wouldn't want to learn English as a second language. Oh, I'm so glad I didn't have to learn it as a second language. But I think what I've learned about English is that it's both good and bad, right? So, so there's a reason that English has taken off as a world language, and it's partly colonialism, but it's partly it that. Is. Colonialism has made it a language that is um, used to a range of speakers. So English is, is mismatched where it's got grammars from different languages, which is part of why it's such a bitch to learn. But it's because people were learning it as a second, third language, even as it was developing as a language. And yeah. so what you get in English is you get so many different accents from so many different parts of the world. Um, with the exception of Americans, because America produces so much media that they mostly only consume their own media, most English speakers get media <laughs> from different countries, and so they're hearing different accents um, and different vocabulary. And so I think English speakers are more gracious to second language speakers because we're used to their being – gracious is probably not the right word, but I think we do. We understand accent better than other languages yeah, do yeah. because we're being accents and you can kind of fill in the gaps. Whereas like Chinese, that, it's, that is much more localised, and Korean the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's less grace yeah. for getting the pronunciation wrong. I, I feel like English is a really a fast language to start speaking in, but an impossible language to perfect. You can have yeah. someone who has spoken it as their major language for decades and still have a clear, yeah. recognizable accent, you know. Um, it's very unyielding. I don't know the word for it, but I get what you mean. But anyway, sorry, go ahead and answer that. Okay. Question. Sorry, we can be talking about languages. I love languages too. We'll sit here all day and talk about <laughs> languages all day long. We just talk for hours. Yeah. Um, I know, I know. Yeah, so my, my sorry, if you guys are listening, actually... we're having a fun time now. It has stopped being the show. This is not a conversation between two nerds, okay? <laughs> Oh, man. Like, my last three years studying, I had a friend who was a linguistics nerd, and as soon as the two of us started talking, you'd be in a group of, like, five people, and slowly everyone else would just kind of that way. <laughs> so it was just the two of us having a linguistics nerd conversation. You don't even notice everyone has left because you're so into yeah. each other. You just and you kind of realize that you're bored yeah. everybody, but you still don't want to stop talking about it. Yeah. My first trip to China, I was in high school. Yeah. I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and my school in, I was back in Australia by then, and my school there had like a teacher exchange with a school in Hangzhou in sort of southern China. And so one year they would send teachers to teach our Chinese classes and have a cultural exchange, and the next year we would send teachers to their school to teach their English classes and have a cultural exchange. And so when I was in grade 12, the school said, we're doing this trip. Um, if any students want to tag along, here's the price tag. Yeah. And um, 
I don't know. It, because it wasn't a trip for Chinese speakers, it was just Australians on cultural exchange, I had the second best Chinese on the trip, um, even as a 17-year-old. And my Chinese wasn't that good. But um, my Chinese teacher was the only person who spoke anything close to fluent Chinese. It was very weird realising I'm now at a point where I speak more Chinese than she did then. But um, anyway, uh, I, I don't know. I had an opportunity to use the language in real life, which I hadn't done before and which was... Kind of like a rush, actually. We're like, oh, wow, I'm communicating with someone. I'm making myself understood. I'm having an interaction. Um, And I'd had little windows on that before, but this was the first time I'd sort of really got to do that, and I just was fascinated and I loved it. But the thing that really stuck with me about the trip was that I wanted to go back. And and it wasn't that it was a roast in a glass and everything was awesome. There was all sorts of stuff that bothered me and that were bad. Like uh, I'd hated being stared at or I – the pollution or there are different other things. There's lots of things that were bad smells or, or roads full of yeah. potholes. Like there are lots of little things that, you know, maybe they're not little things, some of them, but that were problems or that were not pleasant. And yet there was this sense that I want to come back here. There's something here that's interesting. There's something here that's captivating my attention. So I think by the time I moved to China, I already had this like, sense that, yep, there's a lot of things that are going to be confusing or hard or not pleasant but I want to go anyway and I think in my life in general that's a theme for me like I like to count the cost I like to know what's the worst that can happen and do I still want to do it (laughs) so that when things when I have the bad days when you have the the culture shock days and you have the days where everything annoys you you're like but I still want to be here um yeah yeah I I totally relate with that I always used to say that about grad school like yeah it's annoying now, but then what would I rather be doing? Nothing. Okay, just suck yeah. it up and you know, <laughs> cry or have have a tub of, of ice cream, whatever. Yeah. Okay, I'm, so I can speak Korean. Yeah. And I've tried. Like, i branching off a little bit into Japanese mm-hmm. to, you know, see how I can merge that. Because I've heard if you can speak Korean, Japanese shouldn't be that hard. From what I, I know about Mandarin, so I heard that there are tens of thousands of characters. Yeah. And you need about maybe 100 to 500 to, like, at least make your way around. Mm-hmm. But I just don't, I don't, it looks very confusing to me. <laughs> Is it very difficult to learn? It's extremely difficult to learn the reading and writing. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Everyone keeps telling me, no, it's easy. No, Korean is easy oh, as far as you're yeah, learning the alphabet. That's it. An hour, you're done. But I'm looking, I'm like, that doesn't, like, that's, that's a symbol for fire. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. even make sense conceptually. Like, who stacked all of that together? The characters don't okay, start good. making sense until you already know like a thousand of them, you know, because <laughs> the patterns are so disparate that you don't see them until you've learned a huge quantity. So to be able to, yeah. so I'm, uh, I don't even know where I'm at now because I don't do as much reading and writing as I used to because everything's on computer now. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I probably had about four to 6,000 at my peak. I'd say probably three, three, four thousand that I'm comfortable with these days, probably. Um, three, oh, four thousand. You're a prolific reader. Oh, three, is, that, is that the count? If you want to be a good speaker, three to four thousand, you'd be good? Uh, three to four thousand gets you around. So, yeah, that's not bad. if you read a whole newspaper, you probably need more like eight thousand. So, um, the problem is that they specialized vocabulary, right? And we have that in, in most languages, certain fields you have special terms for. But in Chinese, often yeah. those special terms have special characters. It's not just, you can't just phonetically sound out something. You just create a new character. All right, good to know. I think I'm going to avoid Mandarin for a while. Probably need a lot more time for that. <laughs> I, people often ask me, especially living here a long time and being fluent, um, a lot of people, especially people who are new here, ask me, so how did you learn good Chinese? Because they want to be able to do it. Um, and the problem is I've had a very unusual experience. I started very, very young. 
So I feel like mm-hmm. Chinese just seems logical to me in a way it doesn't to most people because I've been using those sentence structures and whatever since I was 11. Um, yeah. And then I did it at university where they had a real focus on reading and writing in Australia. And so I did. I spent, yeah, I did. I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours writing characters out. So I did actually work for it. But when you're living here, you don't have time to just spend hours writing characters all the time. You're, you're working full time. I mean, I think Chinese is a language you need to study it full time at some point to get a real hand. I was thinking, it's not vocational. Like, so Korean mm. for me came very easy, even though some people might tell you Korean is difficult to learn. Mm. You know? And then even looking at Japanese now, so um, you know they have like three major writing systems, there's the kanji, there's the katakana, and I'm trying to like, you know, look at both. And it's it seems more logical to me because it's so similar to the Hangul, like the Korean writing system. Yeah. And then I, I decided to, you know, drift a little bit and let's just look at Mandarin for a while so I can have the, you know, the trifecta, you know, Mandarin, yeah. <laughs> Korean and Japanese. And I'm like, oh no, Chinese is going to wait. Okay. Um, so what you do right now is basically um, TCK stuff. Yes. So you do training, do you work in a school? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, so I really only just started doing the training stuff in the last year. Um, the book came out two years ago, but it came out while I was studying full-time because I did not arrange my life very well. So I was dealing with repatriation full-time, very intense full-time study, and finishing and publishing the book at the same time because I'm a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> but after it came out, I started getting requests to do things, and so I, I fit a little bit in in that last year. Where I was. So one of the big things I do is I go into international schools where most of the students, if not all of the students, are third culture kids, are kids who don't have a passport for the country that they're living in. I do sessions with the kids themselves. I do sessions with mm-hmm. parents. I do sessions with the teachers talking about some of the issues that affect TCKs and how to support them. Because, you know, kind of like when you were asking me about what was it like growing up in Australia, it's hard to tell people what your childhood experience is because you don't have anything to compare it to. This is the only experience you have. That's true. So That's a big true. thing, um, what I do is I've spent, you know, 10, 15 years talking with young TCKs listening to their stories, understanding how they see the world and what this life feels like to them. I didn't come into it as a researcher. I didn't come at it as a parent. I just came as sort of a friend, big sister figure walking alongside these kids. So a lot of what I do is translate that to other people and say, this is how they feel. Articulate things that they can't put together themselves. Um, Maybe when they're in their 20s or their 30s and they're reflecting back, they'll be able to explain things about their life. But when they're in the moment, they can't do it. So I'm trying to give information to teachers and Yeah, so uh, a lot of what I do is translating the TCK experience to other people. So articulating the things that they're going through that they aren't yet able to explain. The worldview of of growing up cross-culturally, and this isn't just third culture kids, this is anyone who grows up with exposure to multiple cultures. You you learn more than one answer to the questions of life. Mm. So what makes you successful, what's important... Um, what makes you a good student, a good child? How do you be polite? How do you show respect? The answers to those questions are different in every culture. And so when you grow up with multiple cultures around you, you grow up with multiple answers to the questions. Mm. And so the answer to that question changes depending who you're talking to and who you're interacting with. Um, and, and so that experience of being in between these different cultures is quite formative for them. And it means they see the world differently than their parents do in, in ways that they don't know how to articulate because... They have an experienced life in a single culture environment. And so, yeah, a lot of what I do is, is explaining to parents, to teachers, to other people, because of these experiences they've been through, this is how they see the world, this is how they experience the world, and therefore these are some things we can do to help support them and to understand them better. Well, that's, uh, so, that's good. So I see you as, as a go-between well, between the parents and then also the TCKs themselves. Because the parents yeah, have a totally different experience. It was their decision mm-hmm. to move all the way, but the kids sometimes are like, "Why am I here?" Like, well, because they didn't make a decision. That, that's that. You, no one chooses to become a third culture kid. Yeah, it happens because a decision was made by somebody else. 
And recently when I was in Tanzania, I was speaking to a group who, due to various situations with government illegalities and stuff, a lot of people were having to leave because um, they couldn't get a new visa, couldn't mm-hmm. renew their visa. They were going to have to leave the country. And they hadn't planned to, they didn't want to, but they had to. And so I'm talking to these parents about this. It's a different kind of grief when it's not your choice. You don't want to go, but you have to because someone else is making. And I took a moment to explain to them, this is how your kids feel every time you move. Now tables have turned. How does that feel? When it's a decision. If they want to move, even if they're happy with the move, it's not their decision. And even if parents consult with their kids, the parents are still the ones who make the decision. They choose whether or not to listen to the kids when the kids offer an opinion. So, yeah, that was actually quite helpful, I think. Very good. I'm kind of curious to know. So, for the interventions you do um, create through your the skills you have, and for just how you are such a treasure to have for between the kids and the parents, how do you go about assessing the effectiveness of your measures? Like, is there like a quality assessment tool you have, or how do you like really get that feedback that oh, this is really working? I should do more of that, or let's you know shove that aside. So the short answer is no. The long answer is that it's been trial and error over a very long period of time. Okay. Uh, so I, I didn't set out trying to get to this point. I wasn't trying to be a speaker. I wasn't trying to be a go-between. It wasn't something I ever aimed for. It kind of happened organically, almost accidentally. I was here doing other things, and a friend was like, hey, you should come spend some time with these kids, and slowly started just sort of mentoring, supporting, walking alongside, doing some stuff with these these kids. And over time, started to realize that I knew things that other people didn't, you know, talking to one mother about one incident that she was having and it was talking to one family through one problem they were having and then starting to see that um, what worked for one parent or one family worked for another one and worked for another one and worked. And so what happened is over a period of 10 years, I developed a set of tools that worked. And, and so now what I'm doing is I'm sharing the stuff that I've learned through 10 years of doing this on the ground. Yeah, so I have lots of stories I can tell you about. Um, <laughs> well, that's good though, because what you did right there is it's as ground, grounded as you can get. It's an iterative process. That means you're refining from time to time. And the fact that you set out in an exploratory way, like, you know what, I'm just going to give myself away and find out what works, and then you tweak it as time goes on. Yeah, and and my seminars are constantly evolving based on the questions I get. You know, I've I've a certain seminar, and I've run it, you know, 15 different times or something, um, and every time you get questions, because I I like – I like them to be interactive. I like there to be space because people come with questions and things that they're concerned about and you want to make sure they've got space to express that even if it doesn't quite fit the content that you've planned to present. So I, I feel like that's it's important to be concerned more about the people that you're talking to than about what you're talking about. That's uh, it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I'm not doing this because I think I'm important. You should listen to me. I'm doing this because I know that you have something that's concerning you and I happen to have learned things that can help. So how do I present you with something that's going to help you um, in the situation that you're in right now? Very good. So um, you're married, right? Yes. Your husband, if I remember, is American. He is. Um, but he grew tell. up mostly here. Oh, he grew up in China. Yeah. Oh, I saw he grew up in, in, in the U.S. I was thinking, like, how were you able to convince him to move to China? Leather, I think. Because uh, uh, I'm married to, and I'm thinking of a way to convince my husband that it's a good idea to finally move to Korea and just forget about everything. So I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you to like give me the secret of a trade. But uh, that's good. So, <laughs> well, I've also let him be married like five months, so I'm not sure I'm the expert on anything yet. <laughs> oh, congratulations! So it's still the honeymoon phase. Something like that. All right, well, good. So um, I think one of the things about being a third culture person is just the importance of building that emotional support, especially when you move to a new place. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you've been able to do that? Um, well, I think 
My first year, I was very lucky in that I was moving into a community that was kind of immediately built up because I'm starting at a university. So automatically, there's other people who are starting as well. And I was in what's known as the university district here. So not just my university, there's a ton of universities and a ton of international students. So there was a lot of, it wasn't hard to find and build that community the first time around. So I learned a lot of things then that I could apply later when it was going to be a bit harder to do that. Um, yeah. So actually, my first year, um, I had these very different kind of groups of different student friends. One of my big group of friends was a group of African students. Another was a group of Indonesian students. They were kind of the two main group I spent time with. And there was another group of sort of more American, European students as well. Um, but I tended to find I had less in common with them other than the fact that it looked normal for me to be around them. I tended to stand out the other groups just looking at me. I was like, one of these things is not like the others, right? <laughs> Guess which? Yes, yes. I remember having had lunch with all my Indonesian friends one day. And this was, I mean, I had lunch with them most days. I was standing outside a restaurant we just come out of and I looked at the, the window, like the glass, the window of the outside of the restaurant and realized that I'm a head taller and like you know, half again as wide as like every other person in the group. And I'm like, huh. I really don't look like I belong here, but I didn't feel like that on the inside. There's this disconnect between the appearance and, and how I felt because they made me feel part of the group. I was the youngest by far, and I was little-sistered very much. <laughs> I, I was treated like the little sister of the group, that's yeah. for sure. Building emotional support. And you've said it, right? Like, yeah. I just find people that you had something in common with, and mm. there weren't necessarily people that looked like you. Yeah. yeah, so the first year, a lot of that was built in for me. I didn't really know what I was doing that time around, but it happened just naturally. And, and but I think... When you do make a big transition, when you have a built-in community, obviously it makes things easier. So especially in a situation like that where it's lots of other people who are also out of place, who are also in transition. So because they were all international students as well, they had all left their country and they had all started again. And so everyone needed new friends and everyone's open to having new friends. And that's what makes expat communities, I think, um, quite beneficial at times because everyone's in the same boat. Yeah. Um, um, some of the big things I talk about a lot when I talk on transition is the balance between building these new relationships, these new supports in your new life, in your new world, but balancing that with maintaining support from people that you already know. Um, I feel like the fact that we have the internet allows us to gain a lot more support from those people in other places while we're in that transition phase. And so I think of that as like, that's like the scaffolding. So I have my old relationships, the people who knew me before, um, as the sort of scaffolding, giving me support while I'm building up this new sort of life um, in a new place. Because when you start out, you're starting from zero. Every relationship is starting at zero. You don't know these people, they don't know you. And even when you meet someone and you get along really well and you click and they make time for you, it takes time to build that trust and to build that, you know, build yourself up to that place where they know you well enough and you know them well enough and you can really support each other. And in the meantime, you still need support you know yeah. you you're in a place where you're so needy and you need emotional support um but you can't really get it from the people around you because you haven't built those relationships to that point yet and being able to rely on a friend that you're talking to on skype or you're talking to on messenger or you're whatsapping through the day yeah um gives you that extra bit of energy and support to allow you to keep investing in the new relationships until they get to that point um but it's amazing how often people feel like that's cheating or yeah. that um unhelpful I feel like I need to throw myself into my new place. If I keep talking to these old friends, it's going to make it harder and it's going to make it worse and it's going to take longer. And I actually think it's easier and it's faster when you can balance those two. Um, when you use the friends in the old place to give you the emotional energy you need to keep so investing in your relationship. Depending when you find your people. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's kind of like that proverbial monkey. Like when you hold on to a tree branch, don't let go of that until you can hold on to the next one. Yeah, exactly. It's the monkey bar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's run a bit of statistics. Sure. From the data you got, got it, because I, I love I love data. I love numbers as well. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Okay, good. Oh, my goodness. 
Have we met already? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> yeah? Okay, good. I, well, I like that. Very good. Good to know we have that in common as well. Mm-hmm. Um, based on all the data you've collected from over 700 and... Um, was it 20? I forget the number now. 700 tickets from over 80 different countries. Um, what would you say are important factors that are modifiable that would um, predict the success of a TCK? And by success, I mean ability to acculturate positively to the new environment. Um, I actually, so I feel like I learned and grew a lot through this process because I'm not someone who's ever been very good with emotions. I tend to want to suppress them and just they're too hard to deal with. Let's put it in a box somewhere. That's and me. The thing I've learned only only that mine comes with ice cream. So <laughs> you do. <laughs> I put them in an ice cream. I eat them through an ice cream tub. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is so me as well. <laughs> You're like my sister from another mother. My husband mother. goes to the gym and I eat ice cream. <laughs> like, I could be much healthier if I went to the gym. As I, know, I know. I know. I know. I know. We don't have that grace. Um, unfortunately for me, or probably fortunately, because I'm now learning these things, what I think is the biggest predictor of success is learning how to deal with emotions well. Um, it's being able to recognize that a situation can be both good and bad, both joyful and painful at the same time. That a person who I love and who loves me can also hurt me accidentally um, or on purpose. Like that, it, that things can be both. The, the, that getting that place of emotional maturity that you can hold on to both things at one time, that you can let those emotions be heard. And so I think what actually happens is in the short term, you get people who look messier are long-term more healthy because the people who are really good at suppressing the feelings can like just get on with life and get things done and look really on top of it and really put together and look like they're going through the transition really, really well. But at some point, all those things that have been suppressed and pushed down are going to erupt sideways. So the people who are letting themselves feel, learning how to understand those feelings, process those feelings in the moment, look messier in the short term, but in the long term, they're much healthier and they can deal with transition better they can um work through those things better and so one of the biggest things i do in all of the talking all the seminars all the, the workshops is talking about these kind of things how do we process our grief well how do we model that how do we teach others to do that um because i actually think that's what we need more than anything else it's it's that self-awareness um and yeah just actually facing our stuff very good. So that's more like that would be like the emotional being able to regulate your emotions, emotional mm. intelligence. That's that, that would be yeah. like a summary. Yeah, exactly. Right? Emotional so intelligence. That's, that's one. What other factor? Um, I, I think that there's a certain openness, um, broad worldview that tends to come to most people in who have these third culture experiences, but not necessarily all. Uh, one of the things that helps you to have that broader experience, um, I actually think is the emotional intelligence because you're able to go, I'm not cranky at this country. I'm upset about this transition. Uh, but yeah, being able to learn consciously, not just subconsciously do it, but to consciously recognize that there is always more than one way to see a situation. Um, because what happens then is when you have a cultural clash that annoys you, Instead of feeling um, that this person's trying, all this culture, all this country is is making life difficult for me, you recognize they just have a different way of doing things. They're not trying to make my life hard. Uh, You stop asking um, why me (laughs) and start asking why them. Why do they think that way? What's happening underneath this? Uh, 
and and it really builds empathy. So I think if you build that ability to see from another perspective, you build that, that practical empathy, um, that helps with cultural difficulties so much because you stop being as easily offended or upset or annoyed yeah. and more easily able to take that as an opportunity to understand another person better. I feel like most people can need that, not just TCKs, because the world around us now, everyone gets offended easily. They probably need to hear this lesson as well. Um, <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Thank you for sharing those two things. Um, so sometimes I feel like I'm doing a little bit too much with my love for Korean, because how do you explain that to people, that you love a culture that you don't even look like? like so how do you do with that? I don't know what the word is. Like You feel like you might come off as fake to people or maybe too superfluous. Yeah. Do, you, do you have the struggles as well? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I've, I've thought a bit about um, the idea of cultural appropriation when it comes to TCKs and expats who have deeply interacted with a culture that they are not ethnically connected to, but they have spent so much time in that culture, they feel a real connection to it, they have lots of friends in that culture, they speak the language, they, they know the clothes, or they have some kind of connection to it. Um, where, how, yeah, how do you, how do you, um, explain that connection to people it means it's very hard to explain it on the surface um as i know a lot of tck's who do especially living in places like the u.s who find it um difficult they don't want to offend others but like you know but this person i lived in pakistan for all these years i want to wear that clothing that's important to me but someone else is going to see that and think that i'm mocking it that i don't know what i'm talking about that yeah. whatever you know and so um several kids i know they kids i shouldn't call them kids they're in their 20s <laughs> but several of these young people i know one of the accommodations they make is to give a, a head, like give a nod to something, but not take it completely. So like they won't wear a full outfit. They'd wear pieces of, they'll have things that, you know, they connect to. There's one woman I met my first year in Australia who, you know, is ethnically Chinese. Um, I think Malay, I think she was Malay Chinese, um, spoke fluent Chinese, but never spoke Chinese to me. Other people would be speaking Chinese to me and she wouldn't. Um, and I would talk about, and she didn't connect. Oh, and, and I, Really, I didn't really notice it that much. Like, I had noticed that she wouldn't acknowledge me speaking Chinese if I did that. Um, but, you know, it wasn't a big deal. But it was, like, you know, nine months later or something, she, she took me aside one day. Or maybe she emailed me. I, I don't know. Anyway, but she, she, she made a point of saying to me, I didn't um, recognize your connection to China. I didn't recognize that as being a true, genuine connection to China. Um, that you really speak Chinese and that you really feel connected to the culture um, because all I saw was a white girl. And oh. she apologized. And she said, from now on, I will address you in Chinese. Oh, wow. How did that make you feel? So validated and so seen. Even though I hadn't felt offended by it, I hadn't felt dismissed, I hadn't felt any of those things, I hadn't known that that's what she was thinking. For her to come back and to make a change in her own way of thinking, um, to look at me and see something other than the white girl, was huge um, because I would forget that I look like a, a typical Westerner. Like, I, I mean, my husband and I both had this experience where you're in Beijing somewhere and you're like, oh, look, a foreigner, and you forget that you also look like a foreigner. <laughs> um, he at least has black hair and, and, you know, sort of half Asian skin, whereas I am very white and very blonde um, and stand out quite a lot. And this is one of the places where I think that childhood of having people from friends from different cultures helps. Um, but I know that for most people, we have great difficulty um, seeing those overlaps in people. You, we mean box people. We go, you are this kind of person. You see a skin color or you hear a language or whatever it is and you think, we just, we stereotype. And, and 
I think it's really difficult for people to work out how to handle a person who crosses the boxes, who looks like one thing and feels like another, who has different experiences that you can't see on their face. Yeah. We're looking for external triggers. Yeah, I think that makes it really difficult when you feel that like you have this multicultural connection. And as you talk uh, to people, you probably don't understand that they might look a certain way, but they might they might not be what you think you are just by looking yeah. at them. Yeah. So, and I can even imagine that when you do even the times you do visit Australia, it's kind of different. You don't feel like, I mean, you hold more. The memories I have of Australia now was from when you were growing up, and it's be more of a romantic um, memory for you. That when you get there, it's like it feels strange to me. Like, how did I grow yeah. up here? Like, it, it was a couple of years of living here where I would visit Australia, and I felt like a visitor. Um, wow. Not that I was going home. And it took a few years, but that definitely happened. So I recently lived in Australia for three years studying, and part of the reason I went to do my study there was, you know, I left when I was 21, and I am in my 30s, and I don't really know how to be Australian, and I wanted to spend some time kind of reconnecting to that country because I think it helps to have a place you can go home to. Um, and now, of course, I've married an American, so that's complicated everything, but it was. It was good for me to spend some time in Australia and start to feel connected, to feel like an Australian in Australia, not just like an Australian when I'm not there. <laughs> Because, yeah. you know, when outside your country and you are marked by that, that, that your nationality is something that picked you out as different and you're known as the Australian or the Nigerian or whatever it is. Yeah. You, you know, I always felt more Australian when I was outside Australia than when I was in Australia. Um, you become more, you become more patriotic about your country when you're away from it. <laughs> yes, you learn more. So, like, I need to answer all these questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I need to make up for my inadequacies here. Let's watch uh, Yeah, I learned more Australian, like, history <laughs> geography than I left because I had to tell everyone. Me too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so it was good for me to go back and spend time there and and learn to be Australian in Australia. It was really good for me. It was difficult um, at first, but it was um, yeah, but it was was good for me and helpful. And I think particularly helpful to have had that experience before um, marrying outside my culture because I think if if I hadn't had that time in Australia first. Um, I would have been less aware of the cultural differences. I would have been less aware of how much Australia is important to me and how much it's a part of who I am. Um, and so I think it's actually, even though in some ways it makes it more difficult because you get, oh, wow, yeah, we are different in these different ways or, you know, um, it's helpful for that to be more on the surface and, and to be more aware of it, I think. Um, mm. I'm going to ask you a question about Australia and then you're gonna, you get to ask me a question about Nigeria. Sounds good. One of my favorite writers, like travel writers, is Bill Bryson. And he oh, wrote a book. I love him. You love Bill Bryson? Yes, he's fantastic. Shut the front door. I, I try to, like, most people don't know him and they have to explain, you know, first about him and then about his books. He's got so, a different vibe, doesn't he? <laughs> sort of that Canadian stuff. He does, he does. Like, I mean, he's American, but then he grew up in England for a while and he has that Americanness to his writing and also that blunt English way of writing. Um, yeah, yeah. He he's got that with a British sense of humor almost. That is. I mean, it's like, I love it because I just love it. You know, it's like best of both worlds. Um, yeah, he wrote about your country in the Sunbound world. Yes, like, he did. Down under, and I love that book. I love that book. And I, I said it before on the show. Like after reading that book, I said, "Oh, I have to go to Australia." And then the next one, like, "No, we're not gonna go. There's more things that can kill you there than anywhere else in the world." <laughs> <laughs> so, is that? I mean, I don't think Bill was lying when he said that. But what's Australia like for uh, someone that hasn't been there before? And I know you've you've not been to the whole of Australia, but just. <laughs> Um, well, first thing, Australia is really big. 
And everyone underestimates just how big and how spread out it is um, because we have a huge landmass and almost no population, which means that there's huge space between every town and there's huge space between everything. Um, and so, you know, uh, yeah, people I think don't understand how hard it is to see anything. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's so far away, you know. Um, and the other one is that, like, you know, there's we get a lot of mileage off the whole dangerous animals things, mm. but for the vast majority of the people, the vast majority of the time, it's really not a concern at all. Some places maybe it's more of a consideration than others. Like in some places where you get more jellyfish or you have more crocodiles or you have more whatever. Um, where I've lived, the only concerns have ever been spiders. And you know, if you're sensitive, wait, 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 it's not. Wait, wait, wait. Really... When you say spiders, you mean like those black widows and tarantulas and all that? Oh no, no, no. We don't really have those so much. It's um, funnel webs and redbacks. So redbacks are really, really small, but they're pretty poisonous. But there's anti-venom now, there so no one's done. There you go. Bag. Some people say, well, snakes are some snakes are not poisonous. To me, all snakes are poisonous. Like 18 of the 20 most poisonous snakes in the world or something. But most of them live in there the desert, go. and there's not people out there. Until they hitch a ride through someone's car, and then they come to my house in Australia, right? Yeah, they live in the desert, all right, but then they can find their way down to town, right? <laughs> well, theoretically, but I literally have never seen a snake in real life really? in the wild. They're out there, but I've never seen one. Wow. Well, good. And what does, like, for those that want to go there, like, what's one thing you, 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 you would sell about Australia? Oh, man. It's just, it's beautiful. Like, I mean, that's the big thing. Um, there's so many beautiful coastlines, and there's so many different environments as well. But um, Australians are also really laid back, and I think that's a real selling point. <laughs> um, where, you know, the, there's, there's lots of really chill people and nice people, um, anywhere you go yeah. and so you know you don't have to I feel like Australia is not a place to be like go 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 all the time it's a place to like just relax and have fun yeah, um, sometimes you do need that you know yeah so many good beaches to go to and there's such good food and you can go on ferry rides and like I don't know just lots of little things to do I feel like Australia is less you must go to all of these museums and these buildings and these places um just go to anywhere and just kind of hang out <laughs> yeah yeah sure so, um, are you curious to know anything about Nigeria? Like, ask a Nigerian. Yeah, I've never been. I've had several Nigerian friends, but I've never been to um, West Africa at all, actually. So, um, I don't know. What should? What do you wish people knew about Nigeria that they don't? Oh wow, that's a very loaded question. Um, very good one <laughs> as well. But I like that. Um, I think one of the things you find here is your first contact with a country could be the people or what you hear in the news, on the news about them. And I want people mm. to know that Nigeria might have all its problems, but never forget about the people that live there. I've encountered different people from different parts of the world. And I still always say this, people are the same wherever you go. You have good people, you have bad people. It's about the values they hold. So when you see a Nigerian, whatever negativity you've heard about Nigerians or whatever experience you've, you know someone that has been through at the hands of a Nigerian, or even if you have been through those experiences as well, try not to generalize that to mean that all Nigerians are that way. You know, yeah. Nigerians are expressed in different you know ways. So I want yeah. them to be a bit more gentle with Nigerians, like as far as the perceptions they have. I know there's that you know Nigerian prince, you know email scam that has been going on. <laughs> no, all Nigerians are that way. No, and you find out even if I mean they've shown time and time again that when you do do these things and they bust these people, most of them are not even Nigerians. People hiding under the cover of Nigerians. So Nigerians are an average hardworking people. You know, most of them are like they're just people like from all over the world. But we, one thing I really love about Nigerians, we have a very large heart. Like we were very accommodating and hospitable. So I like mm. to always remember that. Like if you go to an Nigerian's home as a guest, they will treat you with the very best, even if it's like the last thing they have. 
And yeah, so I would like I would like people to get to know more Nigerians to form a better opinion. Do not limit you know your opinion about Nigerians for what you hear on TV or what you see around you. And even take a step uh, a, a step further and travel to Nigeria and see for yourself. And then you can come tell me about it. So that's that. Oh man, I so want to go one day. It's like right near the top of my list of places I want to go because I've had you know some really good friends from Nigeria and I want to go places that the people I know are from. Um, so yeah. Hey, if okay. you if you if you want to do this, I don't know if you've seen the holidays. One of my favorite movies, like, a, mm. like an exchange. Yeah. We can, we can exchange. You get to visit my home in Nigeria, and I get to visit your home <laughs> in Australia. And well, if you make it to Australia, let me know, and I will hook you up. <laughs> okay. And if you ever, if you, I don't know if I'm gonna be the same in Nigeria at the same time, but really, girl, if you ever want to go to Nigeria, like, let me know. Let me know. I promise you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure you have a good time. I might not be there, but I know people that can make it a good time for you. So let me know. Seriously, that's a promise. I will, I will take you up on that if I ever get to that part of the world. I'm publicly announcing it. I mean, I'm committing myself <laughs> to you. Like, really, really, let me know, because I want for you to experience that as well. But anyways, um, thank you so much for asking that question. I really love that. This is it. This has been, you know, it's been really nice talking to you, and I've really learned a lot from you. I think the biggest thing that I'm, I'm taking away from a conversation is just how one of the key things to have is emotional resilience and ability mm. to deal with your emotions, especially if you're transitioning from a place that isn't yours to another place that you know you're calling home. And having yep. to understand that some emotions might be negative, but there's some things you can learn from that. And and I think that's a tip you can even carry on across your life, wherever wherever you are, whether you're a TCK or not, or a TC person or not. So thank you for that. Yep. And thanks for sharing experience. You know, you being Australian and you know been living in China for as long as you have and on all of the um, the things you're doing there with TCK with the kids as well and their parents and being that liaison between the parents and the kids and helping the parents understand their kids better and you just being that source of support for the kids and even telling us more about your own personal experience how you've been able to build emotional support your concept of friendship your concept of home so thank you so much for you know sharing your wealth of experience for being so freely given and um tanya actually has a book called misunderstood we talked about that earlier so if you want to buy the book and uh, this is a free sponsorship i'm not being paid to say this and it's my way of giving back to tanya for coming on the show it's actually very early in the morning in china she's doing this for me so go to her website and um i, I don't know where your book is available but basically if those that want to contact you how can they contact you um so misunderstood is the name of the book and it's on amazon and everywhere so i'm on twitter and i'm on instagram and everything else um if you put misunderstood and tck into a search engine you'll probably find me okay <laughs> well that's it i don't know if you have any final thoughts or closing thoughts before i wrap it up um just thanks for inviting me and and thanks for talking about this stuff and and making that um something people are thinking about i think our world is getting more and more globalized we have more and more cross-cultural connections and learning to to understand other people's perspectives i think is really helpful hearing other stories hearing other voices helps all of us so thanks for doing this well thank you so much as well um well everyone that has been the show with um, tanya kostman who currently lives in china if you love this content don't forget to subscribe to the show on itunes the more stable podcast and you can email me as well or follow me on instagram or facebook or twitter is most stable m-o-s-i-b-y-l all right guys um, i'll catch you in another episode of the show i've been your host myself all right tanya <laughs> 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 Bye. Bye.